Greetings and welcome to another episode of Unpacking Islamophobia, a project of the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University. My name is Arsalan Iftikhar. I am a senior fellow at Georgetown University, and I'm the author of the book, Fear of a Muslim Planet, Global, Muslim, Global Islamophobia in the New World Order. And today we will be talking about Muslims inside India. And our guest today is Raqib Naik an independent multimedia journalist, editor, and media consultant, originally from Kashmir, currently based in the United States, uh, a founder of HindutvaWatch.org. He also writes about human rights and the rise of right-wing Hindu nationalism across India, which the Washington Post has described as one of India's only and most robust real-time data sets of hate crimes and hate speeches across India. Rakib, thank you for joining us today on Unpacking Islamophobia. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Arslan. You know, um, a lot of people uh, know about uh, the current Prime Minister of uh, India, Narendra Modi, uh, but when you look at the, or I want to analyze the history of Islamophobia, modern Islamophobia within India uh, with Narendra Modi, you have to go actually all the way back to 2002 uh, when he was serving as Chief Minister, aka Governor uh, of Gujarat, uh, and during whose watch, uh, over 2,000 innocent Muslims were murdered during carefully planned attacks of unprecedented uh, savagery, uh, according to the famous historian William Dalrymple, who once referred to Modi as India's Vladimir Putin. Uh, during the Gujarat pogroms, large number of Muslim girls were raped, men were cut to pieces and burned alive with kerosene, pregnant women had their wombs slit open and the fetuses smashed in front of their eyes. Uh, a 2002 Human Rights Watch report found that the attacks against Muslims in Gujarat have been actively supported by state government officials like Narendra Modi uh, and his police force at that time during his chief uh, minister uh, tenure. And so, Rakib, uh, my first question to you is, can you tell us a little bit more about the background and the legacy of the 2002 Gujarat anti-Muslim programs and how that legacy still affects over 200 uh, million minorities across India today. The Gujarat anti-Muslim programs, uh, uh, so it's important to give a little bit back, more background of like, you know, what you already said. So on top of it, I would just like to add a little bit more background, more context. So the Gujarat anti-Muslim programs were a series of violent attacks against uh, Muslims in the state of Gujarat, um, which were carried out by Hindu extremist mobs between February and April 2002, uh, when actually a train filled with Hindu devotees was passing through a town called Godra, and when it caught fire and led to death of 59 Hindus. And uh, the Hindu far-right groups and the state government, which was then led by the current Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, was quick to put the blame, blame on Muslims uh, which was, of course, later disputed by an Indian government investigation in 2005 that the said fire was an accident and not caused by Muslims. But um, the, the violence uh, ensued immediately after those allegations back in 2002, uh, which resulted in uh, the murder of uh, more than 2,000 Muslims and um, uh, displaced, injured thousands and displaced nearly 200,000 Muslims. Uh, from the villages and towns. So uh, the violence was uh, characterized by widespread looting, arson, rape, murder, and, and whatnot. And the recent BBC documentary that was released last month, uh, um, I mean, 
clearly um, gave a picture of like, you know, what really happened back in time uh, and brought a new piece of information uh, that included a finding, an inquiry by the British government that held Prime Minister Narendra Modi directly responsible for the violence. Uh, and it explicitly said that it was all pre-planned. Uh, and, and on one pretext or the other, the Hindu extremists led by militant groups like Vishwa Hindu Parishad were going to attack Muslims they, because they had computerized list of Muslim homes and businesses that uh, they were supposed to uh, supposed to target in the during the violence. And um, as you said, there was widespread and uh, uh, systemic use of rape as a weapon to target Muslim women. Uh, and in some cases, police officials were also involved in it. So, so to kind of put it precisely, it was uh, uh, it was our mini Rwandan genocide, uh, which had the seal of uh, seal and approval of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. There were police officers who filed uh, who later filed affidavits before the Supreme Court of India, saying that he gave explicit orders to police not to act and let Hindus burn the anger. And um, I think 23, uh, 21 years after those riots today, there is no closure for victims. All the accused, all the Hindu extremists who were accused of uh, violence uh, or either out on bail or have been acquitted uh, altogether by the courts. Uh, and uh, I think Bilkis Banu, uh, Bilkis Banu's case, I think a lot of people might know about her uh, last year, the day of Indian independence in August, the uh, Gujarat government, the BJP ruled Gujarat government, uh, after the approval from India's Home Ministry, acquitted 11 Hindu extremists who had brutally gang raped her and killed uh, more than 11 members of her family. So, so there is no closure for victims. Uh, there is uh, no justice. Uh, uh, no justice has been served to them. And just two days after the release of that documentary, BBC documentary last month, a court in Gujarat acquitted 22 other Hindu extremists who were accused of killing 17 Muslims, including two children. So, so th there has never been that closure for Indian Muslims uh, when it comes to serving them the justice. But apart from that, uh, the 2002 anti-Muslim program in Gujarat should be seen from a broader context. It is, and it is a very important event in the modern Indian history, and uh, and it is uh, inextricably linked to the rise of Narendra Modi and BJP to power in 2014, because Modi emerged from that tragedy as a powerful extremist, menacing a militant Hindu leader with a strong base of Hindu um, uh, supremacists uh, who are bigots and endorse that hate and violence against religious minorities, especially Muslims and Christians. So Modi's rise to power in 2014 is a direct result of anti-Muslim uh, policies and politics that he perfected in the state of Gujarat. And his Gujarat model of hate and violence is now the pan-India model. And I think uh, his uh, rule over the last nine years is, is uh, like, you know, an eye-opener to what he has done to India. And it is simply a, a torturous phase uh, for the overall Indian Muslim, Indian Christian community. Uh, what we are seeing today is a blatant attempt 
at the decimation of an entire community of 250 million people. Um, because hate crimes, again, as them have skyrocketed. A Muslim could be just lynched on mere suspicion of consuming a trading beef. And just yesterday, a Muslim in state of Bihar, which is a non-BJP rule state, was lynched in Rasulpur area just because the crowd suspected of uh, suspected him of carrying beef. So, so Muslims are being lynched on suspicion of either consuming, transporting, or carrying beef. Muslim homes and livelihoods are being bulldozed. Uh, I mean, over the past four years, we have seen thousands of such demolitions, so summary demolitions uh, um, throughout India. And their places of worships are being uh, vandalized. And in some cases, uh, the mosques are being completely flattened. The discriminatory laws and orders are being passed to uh, strip Muslims of their citizenship rights. There is hijab ban in BJP rule Karnataka uh, against students, Muslim students uh, attending schools and colleges. And, and the overall crackdown on journalists and media, they're being thrown in, in, into jails under trumped up charges of uh, uh, terrorism and sedition. And, and in fact, like, you know, the kind of work I do at Hindutva Watch of documenting hate crime and hate speeches, every day we come across multiple uh, hate crimes and hundreds of hours of hate speeches delivered at Hindu fire for events across India, where extremists explicitly call for sexual violence against Muslim women and implementing a complete economic boycott of Muslims and calls for demolition of mosques and starting an overall genocidal campaign against them. And since December 2021, 20, uh, when this huge Hindu religious parliament was uh, uh, organized in the state of Uttar Pradesh, where some radical monks explicitly called for raising an army and starting with killing 2 million Muslims. Since then, such events have been uh, organized throughout uh, India. And uh, there are calls for repeating what happened in Rwanda, what happens with Rohingyas in Burma. Uh, and uh, there are also like, you know, our work every day, I think almost every week we come across three or five such events where uh, swords and tridents are, uh, tridents are being distributed uh, to Hindus. And uh, just uh, last month, I did one piece with the Wall Street Journal where we came across um, illegal guns being sold in uh, on uh, Facebook groups, uh, uh, Facebook support groups for Hindu militant groups like Bajrangal. Well, so I, want, I wanted to ask you about some of these groups. Um, you know, both uh, both uh, Mahatma Gandhi's assassin and the current uh, Indian Prime Minister Modi uh, were are uh, proud members of the RSS, uh, the Rastriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, uh, a paramilitary Hindu nationalist group, which Indian writer Pankaj Mishra once said uh, was inspired by the fascist movements of Europe and whose founders believed that Nazi Germany had manifested race pride at its heightest by purging the Jews during World War II. Uh, and so I wanted to ask if you could give us an overview of the RSS and similar right-wing, uh, you know, paramilitary groups within India and, and what kind of impact are they having on uh, the lives of minorities across India today? So uh, RSS is, uh, I mean, terminologies are very important because uh, I believe that it's not a nationalist political organization. It's, it's a militant group. 
and I have gone through all the CIA World Fact Books, fact books that they have uh, written since uh, year 1999. And between 2000 and 2007, they have designated RSS as a militant chauvinistic organization for eight straight years. So, so it's a it's a militant organization, and um, uh, it's it's an armed, uniformed, all male, upper caste. Uh, uh, organization and uh, they, they they believe that uh, India is a Hindu nation where non-Hindus, especially Muslims and Christians, are aliens to the land and they don't deserve equal rights and should be stripped of the uh, stripped of their citizenship rights and kicked out of India. And uh, to achieve that, uh, they uh, support a lot of different methods, uh, from um, direct violence to legislative actions um, uh, that. BJP, the ruling BJP is implementing right now. And uh, it's important to like, you know, when we look at RSS, what it is today and what is happening in India today, it's important to go back to history. And it's exactly 100, 100 years uh, back from now. And the group, the RSS was formed in 1925. Uh, and right now it is the fountainhead of uh, this Hindu nationalist, whatever you call it, Hindu nationalist, Hindu supremacist, Hindu far right or Hindutva ideology. And um, uh, it's the longest running fascist moment in the world. It's co-founders and um, it's co-founders and supporters were influenced by the fascist moment of uh, uh, European fascist moment of 1930s. And they were fanboys of Hitler, Hitler. And many occasions they uh, advocated for adopting Hitler's solution to Jewish problem for Muslims and Christians in India. In, and especially in 1939, uh, it's second Sir, Sir Sang Chalak, the second chief of RSS, whose name is uh, MS Gold Walker. He praised Hitler's uh, purging of Jews and called it as a good lesson for the Hindu far right in India to learn and profit by. So he was actually talking about repeating Holocaust in India. And today we see the rise of such ideologies, the rise of such organization uh, in India and BJP is its uh, um, political affiliate. So RSS political affiliate is ruling India and Prime Minister Narendra Modi was, long time, was a long time RSS member. And RSS has been banned three times uh, since 1949, uh, 1947. First uh, after, definitely after the assassination of uh, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, one of its member uh, was uh, the man who actually pulled the trigger and pumped six bullets into his chest. And then uh, during emergency in 1970s and then in a post-1992, when uh, RSS members, uh, mobs, uh, demolished the historic Babri Masjid in Ayodhya in Uttar Pradesh. And um, I mean, if we kind of go into the profile of RSS, it's pretty long. They're, they're, the, the evils they have done, the terrorist acts they have committed, the list is very long. Just last year, one of the former RSS members um, came out in public and said that RSS leaders were behind uh, different bomb blasts against Muslims uh, and their places of worship in India between 2000, year 2000 and 2010. And in those bomb blasts, I did some, I, I did report on that. Um, nearly 1,000 uh, uh, 1, Muslims were killed in all of those uh, blasts collectively. So 
So RSS is not just RSS. It actually operates through dozens of affiliated organizations. So officially it names like 36 affiliates who work in different sectors from politics to education, to social work, to policy, labor trade, rewriting history. They're almost in everything in India. And um, people might not know, but the biggest labor uh, union in India, it is called Bhartiya Mazur Sangh, and it has 11 million members, is an RSS affiliate. One of the largest uh, 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 farmers union in India, which has like 3.1 million members, it's called Bhartiya Kisan Sangh, is an RSS affiliate. The largest Indian student body, it is called ABVP Akhil Bhartiya Vidyarthi Parishad. It has more than 3 million members again. It's, it's, it's an affiliate of uh, RSS. And the biggest political party in India, of course, with more than 20 million members called the BJP, the Bharatiya Janta Party, is the political wing of RSS. And not just that, the largest private school system in India, it's called uh, Akhil Bharatiya uh, Shiksha Sansthan, and often used uh, uh, interchangeably with Vidya Bharati. So they run this network of 13,000 elementary and high schools with like 146,000 teachers and over 3 million students in India. And they also have the biggest active tribal outreach program. So, so to, to Hinduize uh, indigenous people, they run this uh, organization called Akhil Bharatiya Vanvasi Kalyan Ashram, which runs like 4,460 um, 4, schools uh, and caters to almost 1.25 million uh, students. So, I mean, their network is vast. You can't even imagine. It's like unimaginable. And they did this groundwork right from 1925, built on, on top of it, uh, committed riots, communalized, like, you know, divided communities, radicalized uh, Hindus. And I believe in 21st century, if there has been ever a mass scale radicalization anywhere in the world, it's in India and it's done by RSS. So, so these young Hindus have been radicalized. They've been told to hate Muslims. They have been told that Muslims right across your door are the ones who eat cow, who, who steal your woman, because there is this new trend of uh, you know, targeting Muslims with accusations of love jihad. And then they, they, they spread this, these conspiracy theories that Muslims are producing, you know, the great, great replacement theory you would see here in the West. Muslims are producing in great numbers and they are going to overtake the country. So all these, uh, you know, conspiracy theories are being peddled to radicalize, to kind of present Muslims as some sort of threat and have uh, Hindus, you know, hate them and commit acts of violence against them. You know, you you, uh, you, you talk about the, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, as being the political, uh, you know, vehicle for the RSS. And I want to talk a little bit more about um, legislation and, and laws, and particularly discriminatory laws. Um, you know, the passing of d legislatively discriminatory laws is another method that ultra-nationalists often use to persecute minorities all over the world. Uh, you know, and during Modi's tenure, the Parliament of India has passed many anti-Muslim uh, discriminatory laws, including the controversial Citizenship Amendment Bill in December 2019, which allowed any Hindu, Sikh, Jain, Buddhist, Christian, or Parsi immigrant 
who came into India from Pakistan, Bangladesh, or Afghanistan before 2015 to legally become a citizen. Unsurprisingly, the only major religion that this expansion left out was Islam, uh, with 200 million followers in India, and, and could and did and can lead to the stripping of citizenship. Uh, for millions of Muslims, and uh, you know, people often forget. Uh, very recently, I mean, in, it was only in February 2020 when Donald Trump uh, visited India to visit his pal Narendra Modi. Uh, you know, there was an anti-Muslim pogrom that was going on outside, where 47 innocent people uh, were killed. And 47 Muslims were killed by uh, you know baton-wielding police and, and violent uh, extremist mobs. And so, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about the discriminatory laws across India, like the Citizenship Amendment Bill and others, and why people of conscience around the world should be aware and, and oppose them? Right from the start, BJP came into power. So one of the reasons uh, BJP, you know, one of the agendas that is on top of like you know BJP's to to do uh, to do list since 2014 has been push laws through parliament that can uh, push Muslims to the margins, like, you know, use whatever opportunity they can get to, to achieve uh, their vision of Hindu nation. Um, so what they have been doing since then, weaponize different laws to target uh, Muslim minorities and Christians as well. So over the past nine years, we have seen so many discriminatory laws passed by the parliament and then the legislatures, state legislature controlled by the BJP governments, um, uh, BJP at the state level. So like in some states, uh, BJP has passed these laws, as I mentioned before, against Lao Jihad. Uh, it's an anti-conversion anti law. Like Lao Jihad means that uh, according to this conspiracy theories, theory of Hindu far right, that Muslims, uh, you know, befriend Hindu women uh, and then marry them just with an intention to convert uh, their them to Islam, uh, which is an absolute lie. Like, you know, there are no numbers to support. But nonetheless, this is a conspiracy theory. And on basis of this conspiracy theory, laws are being passed. Um, so there, and these laws are explicitly used to target uh, Muslims and Christians. So what we are seeing right now in India is this trend where if you see a Muslim guy talking to a Hindu girl, Hindu, the right wing, the Hindu far right militants show up, they beat the person black and blue and then hand them over to police, accusing them of love jihad. So you see Christians praying in their homes, like, you know, during um, these uh, Sunday prayers, these congregations, you would see Hindu Farai, there are so many incidents, like every day we come across in these incidents at Hindu Tawach, we post those videos, archive, document those videos. You see Hindu Farai people barging into those homes, you know, beating them black and blue, accusing them of converting uh, Hindus to Christianity by giving them allurement of money and all whatnot, quote-unquote money, allurement, and then uh, hand them over to police, and police locks them. And, um, you know, the process is the punishment. It takes years until they can prove them uh, prove uh, themselves innocent. So there are these two laws, and then there are laws like um, against beef, you know, beef ban laws. Anyone, anyone who 
consumes, carries, transports, uh, you know, or slaughters cow, uh, they can be, you know, charged under this law. And this law has been uh, specifically uh, weaponized against Muslims. Like, like in some cases, a person would be just carrying a chicken, but just on that pretext that he's carrying meat, they, they in some cases you would see Muslims being lynched. And as I said earlier, just yesterday a Muslim man in the state of Bihar was lynched because he was um, because the crowd assumed he was carrying uh, beef with him. And then a few weeks back, the, there were two Muslim men in the state of Haryana, BJP rule state, who were first killed and then their bodies burned by uh, Bajrang Dal militants, which is an affiliate of RSS again. And um, our, 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 the suspicion of, um, or the suspicion that they were, you know, transporting uh, cattle, transporting cow. And then we have, um, you know, hijab ban in Karnataka state and then anti-conversion laws in various states to that are specifically weaponized against Christians and Muslim alike. And then as you talked about the citizenship amendment bill, um, this is, this this citizenship amendment bill that uh, was passed in 2019 and offers a fast track citizenship to persecuted minorities hindus sikhs jains buddhists from neighboring uh, afghanistan pakistan and bangladesh except muslims so this law from the outset this is this violates this violates indian constitution which prohibits uh, discrimination on basis of religion and uh, it goes against fundamental principles of human rights and equality that should be said from the start. And it's it's clearly part of the, the larger agenda of the ruling BJP to marginalize and uh, disenfranchise India's, India's Muslim population. Because citizenship law, if you look at it, uh, look at it, in isolation it looks like oh these guys are trying to help the persecuted minorities from yeah. these three countries but when you look but at the broader it. picture because because there is another uh, um, thing called national register of citizens which mm -hmm. seeks to verify whether someone is illegal immigrant in india or not and that practice was carried in assam the state of assam the northeastern state of india and uh, when that practice was carried, more than 1.9 million uh, Indian citizens were declared um, stateless. And out of that, more than 700,000 were Muslims. So what they are trying to do here is create this, uh, you know, smart nexus of NRC and CAA. So first implement NRC and uh, people, who, the Hindus who are left out of NRC, they come back as citizens through Citizenship Amendment Act, but the Muslims who will be left out of NRC would literally be stateless because there is no mention of, uh, because Muslims can't get citizenship under the Citizenship Amendment Act. And, uh, and you know, the India India's Home Minister, Amit Shah, he himself said, because right now what you would see this whole rhetoric that, hey, CA won't disenfranchise Muslims, this is just propaganda. But Amit Shah, the Home Minister of India himself said that both CAA and NRC should be looked together. They, sh they shouldn't be looked at isolated, like, you know, in isolation. They're together. They will work in tandem. So first they will bring NRC and then they will implement CAA.
He is also referred to Muslims as termites that he wanted to. Yeah, it's it's rampant, and and also the Muslims who would be left stateless would be thrown into detention centers. And Assam, the state of Assam, that declared 1.9 million uh, people stateless a few years back, they recently inaugurated their first India's biggest detention center, and mostly Muslims are housed in that detention center right now. And recently a story was published in Al Jazeera that explicitly said that these are not detention centers, they are worse than jails. You know, um, I, I wanna ask you uh, about your homeland, uh, Kashmir. Uh, you know, many people might not know that the land known as Kashmir is the only Muslim majority state inside of India. In August, 2019, Narendra Modi revoked the autonomous status of both Jammu and Kashmir by revoking Article 370 and 35A of the Indian Constitution, stripping the state of the special status it was granted after the partition of India and Pakistan in 1947. This action by Modi cleared the way for non-Kashmiris to buy land in the region for the first time in decades. And many scholars and human rights activists expressed fears that this move was part of the government's plans for a settler colonial project for Hindus inside Kashmir. So, Rakib, I wanted to ask you if you could share with us your thoughts about the current situation in Kashmir and how that impacts the greater Muslim community of 200 plus million Muslims across India today. Yeah, to first correct you, Arsalan, uh, Kashmir is not an Indian state. It's not part of India. It's, it's a disputed territory. Okay. And to, uh, uh, to answer your question, uh, Kashmir is altogether a, a heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. Myself being Kashmir, have seen everything with my own eyes before moving to self-exile in 2020. So I know, I mean, it's, 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 an, it's, it's a tragedy altogether. Uh, it's, it's, Kashmir is our Palestine. Uh, and in fact, in some cases, worse than it. And uh, as you said, Kashmir has always been part of India's uh, settler colonial agenda. And uh, that's why they're willing to go to any length to tame the region and its people. And uh, like a colonist, India is using different ways to steal our land, our resources, and displace the indigenous population. And uh, Kashmir is right now the most militarized zone on earth. Nearly a million soldiers for 909 million uh, Kashmiris. Nearly a million soldiers. And, and what we are witnessing today in Kashmir is a perpetual siege. That is there, that has always been there since 1990s, uh, when the first uprising against Indian uh, rule started. But uh, now there is this sense of unimaginable fear uh, after this uh, latest round of crackdown that started on 5th of August 2019, when India rescinded Kashmir's special status and revoked its degree of autonomy that was granted under Article 370 of the Indian Constitution. And uh, it also revoked the Article 35A that... Um, what, what did that mean practically? Was that what? What did that mean practically? The revoking, the, the changing of the yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm going there. Good. So, so what happened is, uh, as a result of both uh, these uh, revocation of both these articles, what India is trying to do is uh, change the demography of the region, as you mentioned, uh, by bringing in voters from India, 
registering the army soldiers who were stationed there. And um, as per the latest reports, they have plans to register nearly 2.5 million Indian voters in our region. So to dispossess, disenfranchise, you know, have settlers like you see in Palestine, uh, in Kashmir. So the same practice is going on in there um, and they're very much actively working on it since 2019. But um, in international media, you won't talk, you, you, you won't uh, read about it because it's Kashmir, uh, the lesser human, not a concern for the international media or the Americans. But on top of that, thousands of, there are thousands of political prisoners behind bars. Um, and uh, a lot of my journalist colleagues and activists uh, are in jails, like Fahad Shah, who was the editor of um, Kashmir Walla magazine. There is Sajad Gul, and there is our prominent, uh, brave human rights activist, Kurum Parvez. Um, he's, he's behind the bars. And the academicians have been silenced. Uh, there is no research, like, you know, quality research coming on the conflict in Kashmir over the past so many years. And... Um, Recently, they started demolishing houses or the allegations that those structures were built illegally our state lands. Uh, but those families whose houses were demolished, like, you know, hundreds across Jammu and Kashmir, uh, they had papers to prove the, the ownership of the land. But again, you know, what colonists do, they just want to dispossess you, like, you know, and that's what they're doing, dispossession, uh, dispossessing Kashmiris. And um, now, just yesterday, there was an article in New York Times, they're arming local Hindus in Jammu region. And it's quite surprising to me and everyone that the Indian government in the world's most militarized zone would need uh, civilians with arms to defend the people. I don't know, like, you know, what that argument is. So to answer the second part of your question, how what's happening in Kashmir and how it's impacting the Muslims in India. I think the Kashmir model of oppression that the previous government, including the Congress government, and now the BJP, uh, that model of oppression that they perfected in Kashmir has been taken and being implemented on Muslims in India, Muslims and critics in India. So uh, the impact of this crisis, of course, has extended beyond the region as we have seen over the past nine years, the same things that we would see in Kashmir over the past more than three decades are being implemented in India. And, um, and um, I mean, Muslims are feeling marginalized and targeted in India because of that. So, so our, this, this whole thing is driven by this uh, dangerous, uh, nah, this dangerous supremacist ideology that uh, seeks to uh, marginalize, target, criminalize, demonize, disenfranchise the Indian Muslim population, including nine million Kashmiris. You know, uh, for my last question, I just want to, uh, I want to ask you about, um, you know, what you think the future is going to be. Uh, you know, you run a website called HindutvaWatch.org where you chronicle the rise of hate crimes and hate speech against minorities in India. And as my final question, I would just love for you to share with our audience your thoughts uh, about the, you know, the future of minorities in India, including Muslims and Dalits and Christians uh, who call India their ancestral homes. At Hindutva Watch, uh, me and my team, every day, 
you know, we analyze hate crimes and hate speeches and the churning that's going on in, uh, on the ground. And over the past um, four to six months, we have kind of witnessed something that is totally different. Like we have seen that before, but it's a little different this time. There's organizing going on on the ground, like, you know, in states like Maharashtra, you would have these events calling for um, implementing, uh, calling for a national a passage of nationwide laws on, on the conspiracy theory of Lao Jihad, population control laws and anti-beef uh, uh, beef ban laws. And at those events, you would have these leaders come and openly call for genocidal violence against minorities. And those crowds, they are not hundreds of people. There are tens of thousands of people, young children, adults, men, women, elderly, everyone is part of that crowd. And that is not just there in uh, Maharashtra state. You will see in uh, West Bengal, in Haryana, of course, in Uttar Pradesh, ruled by the BJP. In Madhya Pradesh, uh, so many rallies by these Hindu far-right uh, groups. Uh, they, they organize these big marches, wearing uh, uniforms, holding swords and cans, and they rally, they march through main roads um, across Muslim localities. So something really is brewing up on the ground. And uh, that kind of makes me worry, my team worry, and should worry everyone around the world that the Hindu far-right, the Hindu militant extremists in India are preparing for something worse. So the future, of course, looks very bleak and grim. And uh, the overall climate that this government has created in India is deeply troubling for Muslims and other minorities. And I, I believe that um, the real concern that things will continue and to get worse in the coming years uh, is something, it's quite a possibility because it's actions in Kashmir, like, you know, um, the rescinding of uh, its special uh, status, the implementation of uh, Citizenship Amendment Act, NRC, then beef ban, hijab ban, all these um, discriminatory laws that they have passed and this ongoing, ongoing violence against Muslims in various parts of the country or clear indication of its agenda. And uh, the government's rhetoric and policies have emboldened these extremist groups and individuals who carry out these violent attacks against Muslims and other communities with impunity. And the situation is further exacerbated by the lack of accountability for, these, for, for those who are responsible for, for these acts of violence and discrimination, because government is explicitly either silent or failing to take any effective action against perpetrators, like against the hate speeches. Even Supreme Court of India is helpless. They pass order calling on police to stop the events where hate speeches are given. But I can tell you every day we come across three to four events where hate speeches are delivered and two hundreds of uh, thousands of people uh, attending uh, attending those events. So, so so things are, of course, like, you know, extremely worrisome. And in fact, Genocide Watch issued a genocide alert for India last year, putting it on the A stage of genocide. And there are elections coming in 2024. And I can tell you, I mean, people would want to be hopeful, be want to be optimistic, but I can tell you Modi is coming back to power. If Modi leaves, then someone 
someone more tougher or like, you know, his next in line, his successor seems to be Hindu militant monk called Yogi Adityanath, who is the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh state. So, so things are going to be very bleak. And uh, again, I think the world needs to take uh, take interest um, in what's happening in India because what will happen in India will impact the stability of the entire region along with the world. And throughout the history, whenever a community has been at the risk or uh, at the brink or going through a genocide, whether it be against Jews in uh, Nazi Germany or Tutsis in Rwanda, Bosnia, Rohingya, the world has always kind of looked the other way. The question here is, are we going to repeat that again? And that too in 2023 and uh, let the subcontinent burn. So that's something we need to ask ourselves and the world needs to ask, um, you know. So it's it's crucial that international community holds the Indian government accountable for its actions and puts pressure that they need to mend their ways and protect their religious minorities against a potential genocide. Rakib Naik, thank you so much for joining me uh, here today. The Unpacking Islamophobia podcast is a project of the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University. For more information, please visit bridge.georgetown.edu. Thanks for joining me, Rakib.